It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to have a sit down with some of the award-winning local journalists who cover the East End and do a little bit of a deeper dive into the news from this week. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27east.com. I should also mention Express Magazine. Uh, with me is uh, my managing editor, Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And uh, we have a terrific panel this week. We have Alec Lewis, who is a staff writer at Riverhead Local. Hey, Alec. Hi, thanks for having me. Good morning. Uh, Beth Young, editor of the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Good morning. And we have Christopher uh, Ganjemi from the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to have you. So, Alec, let's start with you. You had a story this week about uh, a transit project that's near the uh, Long Island Railroad Station in Riverhead. Tell us a little bit about what that project is and what the new developments are. So the town has been trying to develop this space um, for actually almost 25 years. Mm. Um, They've passed, uh, they designated an urban renewal area in 1997, and now projects are finally um, coming you know to fruition um last year they put out a request for proposals and they got responses from a master developer um and they designated a master developer who wants to build a four and five-story mixed-use apartment building with about 243 apartments and uh parking on the ground floor and um all like uh commercial uses lined around it and to basically have to activate the this railroad station which only really comes twice a day um you know but to try to boost this area of the town that's um it's quite blighted there's a lot of really bad public perception of the area Uh, a lot of homeless people there and and they really want to create this area into something into something new and and so that young people can come and and maybe commute to this place and um as well as that um that's going to be built on a basically right now what's municipal parking uh municipal parking lot for the train station um so that's going to go on top of that lot and then um down the street um down railroad avenue perpendicular to railroad avenue is a uh, griffin avenue which will also be getting a mixed-use building with 36 workforce apartments. This is what's proposed. And then behind that's going to be a 332 space uh, public parking garage that the town will own. And that'll also be lined with retail shops in front of Griffin Avenue. And that's like opposite the uh, the Supreme Court building in Riverhead for, for reference. And so that's on top of a Suffolk County um, uh, parking lot right now for the, for the courts. Wow. That's, that really is a redevelopment of that area, isn't it? Yeah, it's a multi-million dollar project. Um, the developer said it's around, um, I think, uh, 140 or $135 million. Um, and so they just held the qualified and eligible hearing, which is um, required under state urban renewal law um, for any and, you know municipality uh, selling or leasing land to um, somebody outside with a, you know, a, a, not a competitive process. And so um, these developers, which is uh, RxR Realty and uh, Georgica Green Ventures, who have projects uh, all around Long Island, um, came in and they presented their qualifications 
And, um, you know, they, they said basically that they have a lot of projects like this on Long Island, uh, Georgica Green Ventures, GGV. They've done projects all across the East End, actually. Um, yeah, Georgica Green did the the Spionk development, which was at the train station there, right? And they yes, yeah. and they also did the Sandy Hollow development in Tuckahoe. So yeah, um, but they have some experience doing this at train stations, I guess. Yes, so they've pointed to that, and they also have like a a big development um, riding on the riverfront, Peconic, uh, I think. Uh, no, Riverview Lofts is is the name, but just got it confused. Um, well, yeah, I, mean, they, you know, I I think that that you know, I mean, there's. There's a model up island for housing and, and workforce housing near near railroad stations. But I mean, when you're talking about Spionk and Riverhead, I don't know that that, you know, as, as Alex said, you know, the train comes in a couple times a day, the same as with Spionk. I'm not sure that model, I mean, unless the LIRR is going to step up and increase service to those stations, I'm not sure that it's a, you know, that it's a, a workable model for 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 that. I mean, it's great if if you have trains running all the time and and people can live there. You, you don't necessarily have to drive, although I don't know how you get your groceries. But you know, you know, you can you can commute into into the city or places further up island, and I think that works great in 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 Ronkonkoma and and Hopog and and all that. I'm not sure that model um out here is is it works the same way i i guess i mean housing is housing and i think it's great when when you get more workforce housing uh, in in the mix and something we certainly need i'm just not um i'm not clear on how that model is appropriate yeah ju just to be clear the, the griffin avenue building is you know going to be 36 workforce apartments but the the larger building which is um right near the train station is um going to be uh the the 240 is going to be at, i believe market rate so mm -hmm. um they're not going to be you know workforce housing which of course is um based on your income um um for certain prices right. and yeah i tend to agree with you on this front that that there's really not as much of um there's i mean transoriented development is 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 i think great like but I feel like Long Island is a place where you kind of need a car. <laughs> I mean, yeah. to get around, yeah. I, I, it's it's hard. And and um, you know, if I guess Riverhead was, uh, you know, had some more trains, um, that would be a good development and and such. But um, it almost know. feels like the train station is a second thought. It did, it, it, you know, there really is. There's this phrase that they use in planning all the time, smart growth, where you want to put housing near trans transportation and near the, the town centers and and that kind of thing to make it walkable. But this almost feels like a red herring. I mean, it's near a train station, but I wonder who the target uh the target community is there are the do they really think people are going to move there and take the train to to work or is you know it it seems like it seems like they've put the cart before the horse almost yeah town officials i mean they said that you know if they build this then the long island railroad will you know mm. put more trains to the station mm. and stuff yeah, and people move in there because the LIRR has always been really excited <laughs> about increasing service on the East End. <laughs> no, yeah. but I mean, I think the 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 goal is to attract, and especially from all these apartment buildings that are coming up downtown, is to attract 
um, younger people who want to move into Riverhead maybe. And, and this is a bridge to, to buying a house. Um, and, and so they come here, they, they work here and, and they, they experience this whole downtown. It's a walkable downtown. I mean, the one thing that this proposal does have for it is that that area is, is very blighted and that this, um, proposal will definitely, um, make it look a lot, a lot better. Uh, let me tell you that. Parking has really become a problem downtown. So So adding the parking is a big part of that too. Yeah. 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 Park garage really good. And, and making it more, I mean, this is their goal is that they want to make downtown more walkable. And this is uh, another step in that. And I, I I like that. I think it's, it's commendable to want to do that. I, I think that's smart. I mean, you've got a really vibrant downtown now and it's just getting more and more so and and you know opportunities um you know downtown business district is, is really nice and this is really close and, and walkable and and all that and i think adds to that if you're going to have you know a, a busy a busy main street you need people living you know on on or near main street otherwise it just becomes a nine to five thing and you know and it gets scary at night again so i, I think that 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 part is is good it's a good area One of the things they're talking about, if you walk down Griffin Avenue from the railroad to um, Main Street right now, there's no street trees. It's just like you're walking through like the the court buildings and and um, parking power lines, (laughs) power lines and and parking lots. They want (laughs) and it's funny like when you enjoy a walk, it doesn't seem as far. So part of their plan is to really make it an enjoyable walking experience and that just kind of funnels you downtown because it's really only a, a block and a half from downtown yeah um and the and the parking garage i believe this was in the initial proposal was that it was going to be the street frontage would be shops right Is that- yes it's going to be shops and then on the top floors is the are the workforce apartments yeah. so yeah. that's supposed sort to- of from sort of similar to what's being proposed in Sag Harbor too. I mean, maybe on a slightly smaller scale, but I think it's interesting, Beth and Chris, that that um, this is a proposal that seems to be linked to the train station, but really is just part of Riverhead's continuing effort to add more, uh, you know, they've really made an effort to add more apartments and, and bring some vibrancy to downtown. And I think they've done a great job with that. It seems like it fits nicely into that, but I think it also highlights this lack of transportation infrastructure, Chris, that, that, you know, we have when the, I'll say this, the Spionk development that was built, uh, at least the trains there, we have the commuter connection. So there are people who can take the train and actually go to jobs to the east on on the South Fork. Yeah, you, just, come, you just can't come back on a Friday night in the summer. That's the problem. Kind of there. This, this, inconsist, this inconsistency with, with public transportation, I mean, public transportation is clearly an element of, of what we need to do to try and start improving things on the South Fork, Chris, but um, we don't really have that, right? No, I mean, I, I guess it, it's in a way, it's like a, if you build it, they will, will come type hope. They're building and i guess they're hopeful that the trains will come but like bill said i don't know it seems like a bit of a risk i mean i I, yeah i think they they must know they're going to be able to make their money back yeah i mean you would think that but with the other you know i know there had been talk uh in the last 10 years about these things called scoot trains that are there are smaller trains that can be used as commuter trains. I don't think that's ever gotten off the launching pad, though, has it, Beth? I, 
Yeah. I, they're still waiting for some infrastructure improvements and, and, and kind of right, right now you can't do that because you've only got, you know, the single track and, and you can have a train going one way or a train coming the other way. You can't have the both. And, and I think Fred Thiel has been big, um, you know, pushing for, for that. I think if they can do that, if they can do the Hamlet to Hamlet, uh, you know, trains, I, I think you'll see a really increased service. And then it's almost like a, um, you know, a, a, almost like a, a subway system where, you know, you've got this real, real ability to, it's above ground subway. See, <laughs> laughing, subway. It's like a train, it's like an actual yeah. train system where you can, where you can go back and forth. And I, I think that would be well, well utilized, not just by commuters, but by, by people, you know, going across the South Fork. I don't know. It's hard because you look at like the buses, for example, and and uh, buses that come through Sag Harbor. There's lar- largely empty. Um, I you know I, I don't really see too many people using them. I I wonder. Yes, ninety two is pretty well used. But. I, I, but I think you've got the same issue as as with the trains that you've got one bus that runs, um, not not very. Um, you know, not very often, and you know, I mean, you hear the horror stories about, you know, you know, three-hour trips one way and a three-hour trip back because it's it's this huge loop or, or whatever. The the uh, bus on demand system that that they were doing, I think that helped, um, or or was hoped that that, that would help um, improve um, improve the service, and that's um, similar to an Uber where you have an, an app on your phone and you can and they have the um, the, the short county buses and and um if if you you know hit the app that you need a ride it'll tell you you know where a bus will be within a couple blocks of you and you can go meet the bus and um you know and kind of work it that way i think you need you, you need you know smart alternatives like that if you're going to improve public transportation mm-hmm. on, on on the east end alec i'm curious in the conversations about this project in particular, and maybe some of the other housing projects that are going up in Riverhead. Is there a conversation about where they think these young people are going to work? Do they do they feel like these are people that are going to work on the South Fork? Do they think it's it's jobs in Riverhead? Do they think it's jobs to the West? Or, or has that not really been part of the conversation? I don't think that's really been part of the conversation. I mean, there's... there. They say that, oh, maybe it's a young up and coming lawyer who works at the law office in, you know, Riverhead or law office in another town. But like those conversations haven't, I don't think, really been been happening. Um, It's interesting because I think it's just going to feed more cars into the South Fork traffic flow. Um, I think it's needed. I mean, clearly we are losing, you know, anecdotally, you hear stories about. We're losing, you know, doctors and, and attorneys and teachers and, you know, police yeah. officers, people, you know, can't afford to live here. So it gives them an option, but it does just add more cars, I'm and, thinking, in, into the well, flow. And Joe, oh, it's, I'm sorry. It's, it's interesting that Alec talks about, you know, lawyers, too. I mean, you've got right there. I mean, you've got, you know, a couple of courthouses. You've got the state court and you've got the, the county court and all that. And you think about all the employees that work there in the county center and the jail. Yeah. Um, you know, that that are all nearby. And if you if you kind of, you know, target some of, of those people, I mean, they're just not just not just attorneys, but just the number of people working in, in those facilities. It's a huge it's a huge number. 
who knows where they're living if they're commuting in and and, and out from uh, from Riverhead, they might want to be closer to work. And could I just make one more point that that I mean, a few months ago, we, we ran an editorial um, about affordable housing uh, town officials. You know, they've said that um, that Riverhead doesn't have an affordable housing problem and actually kind of said, well, you know, this is, you know, the trade parade and everything. There's, you know, people going going east. And so uh, really, that's the other town's problems. The other towns have the affordable housing problem and that Riverhead doesn't have that problem. And they also um, said that they should have been more progressive like Riverhead is. Which is just, OK. <laughs> and so that's is, one of the reasons why Riverhead, I think, is going to be the only town on the east end that doesn't adopt this, this or at least have on the ballot this um half percent uh, real estate transfer tax. The community housing fund proposal. Yeah. Fund. Right. Yeah, oh, it's interesting, though, because it, it could go towards projects like some of the ones they're doing right now it would help so offset some of the costs of those. If they had but but they're but they're the ones doing these projects I mean, mm -hmm. you're not seeing these projects any anywhere else on the east end. So so maybe there's I, I agree you could take the money and put it put it into these projects. But, um, you know, they, they seem to be a step ahead anyway in, in creating housing. I would argue East, east Hampton does. A, you know, it's, it's been pretty busy. And, creating some affordable housing, you know, over the years, more so than, than Southampton, but not Riverhead South does. Riverhead is certainly setting the pace. This is just a, another yeah. project towards the redevelopment of Riverhead, and we'll keep an eye on uh, Alex reporting on that. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today, uh, Alec Lewis from Riverhead Local, uh, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Christopher Ganjemi from the East Hampton Star. And Chris, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, we, we talk all the time in our papers and our websites about uh, the emergency management community out here, which is terrific. And we talk about the police and the fire and the ambulance. There is one component of that response that I think gets short shrift. And I think it's great that you put them in the spotlight this week. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, you know, Sarah Amadon, who's an East Hampton Village trustee, got in touch with me uh, as part of, you know, well, a training, you could say. She sat with the dispatchers one day. And it surprised me that that's not a common occurrence but the dispatchers told me that that's really only happened like two other times um and she you know it was an eye-opening experience for her to see what they do you know you see you know you see policemen you see the firemen uh lifeguards you see these people but the dispatchers are really an invisible crew who are sitting in this darkened room in the uh emergency services building in, in east hampton village 24 7 365 um always have three people there you know even in the middle of the night waiting for something to happen and they're the people who you know call comes in and they're grouping you know or getting the emergency responders all together and figuring out who needs to go where and, and what uh it's it was a pretty amazing system they have it's it's all very software based. Um, they're all connected. You know, a call comes in and as uh, the call receiver is typing in the emergency, you know, the other dispatchers in the room see it, uh, what they're typing in. Uh, there's 
a, a code with lights. So if they start typing in, you know, fire, um, a red light goes off for one of the other dispatchers and they know to contact the, uh, you know, fire department needed and they start sending them, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's a lot that they do. Um, it's, and they play such an essential role because they are the, the conduit from people who need help to the people who provide the help. And it's like you said, I, I don't think we ever sort of recognize their role that, that, that these are men and women that are doing a, a really essential job and, and we don't really talk about them very much. And it's a shame. Yeah. And, you know, one, one thing that struck me while I was there was well, first of all, the amount of screens, it's crazy. Um, they're all over, but you know, above the, the main desk, there was a huge array with all of these uh, security cameras from the school. And, you know, you're seeing, you know, it, 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 it's just kind of jarring in a way to see school children walk across a security camera and think, oh, like, emergency like you know this is you know and, and the way that our the way that things have happened in the last you know few years with schools and school security uh it just kind of hit me in a weird way just seeing that and then these guys are are constantly in that mindset and i think it must be pretty difficult um you know they're they're members of the community and they are hearing from people they may know um you know, they never really know. It's really kind of funny. Um, you know, I wrote the police blotter for a while at the star and, you know, you got some ridiculous things, you know, like there's a napkin on my lawn you know, and, I, and, and people call the cops um, so they could get that. Uh, but then they can also get what they've they've said a number of times, like, oh, there's a baby in the bottom of the pool. You know, every time that phone rings, they don't know what it's going to be. And they're trained with these scripts to basically walk people through any kind of emergency that they may be having. And they train seasonally. So in the summertime, when pools are open, they're talking, they're, they're going through their drowning protocols to be able to explain to somebody step-by-step step what to do, yeah. you know, in the winter, maybe they're working on ice, you know, somebody's fallen through a pond. How do you get that person out? And so there's a lot to the job and and yeah i think they're largely invisible and pretty underappreciated it's got to be a very stressful job too i mean you're you're that first line you're you're talking to people who are calling who are who are are, are in crisis and, and and don't know what to do and 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 need help and and all of a sudden it's all on you for a minute to to get the right people out there you know to to do the right job and i just can't imagine the stress that's involved there yeah. yeah. And, um, Brittany Lloyd, who's, uh, one of the dispatchers said to me, you know, you could, you could just have talked somebody through like the worst day of their life. Yeah. And then guess what? The phone rings again, two minutes later and you're, you know, you have, they have to transition to whatever is next and they always have to be calm. They have people yelling at them sometimes. And then the, it's kind of, it's not really funny, but on top of it, there's a window there where the public can come in and and maybe argue a traffic ticket or whatever they're pissed off about something so you know um they said you know Brittany could have just walked like literally walked a woman through childbirth over the phone and then somebody's knocking on the window yelling that they just got a parking ticket you know so there's all of these 
these little uh, things bumping up against each other there. There's training, but boy, you have to bring something to the sure. table yourself. Beth, you're part of the emergency community, so we always turn to you sort of for insight here. Um, I've always been curious, do emergency response folks know the dispatchers? Do you develop relationships with dispatchers or are they sort of anonymous to the crews as well? Um, well, they're mostly interacting with the person who called in. Um, and so they dispatch us and our chiefs go and they assess the situation once they get there. Um, so what they're doing with us is really just very basic coordination. Like they find out who's responding, make sure that the resources that are supposed to be there are showing up. If not, you have to call another agency. Like if you need two ambulances and you can only get one from one fire department, you have to get one from another. Um, but there are also um, dispatchers within the firehouse um, during the daytime. So it's a very interesting interplay. Like they, they kick things over to the firehouse and that's different in every fire department. So just the interaction between the in-house um, dispatchers and the ones um, at the police station, it's different than in East Hampton, I guess, because they're all in the emergency services building there. Uh, but it's very it's very complex. It's different in every place. Um, and there are there are a couple of, of dispatcher. Uh, th there's a couple of uh, centers that do that right on on the South Fork in particular, but all through the East End, they have uh, a handful of individual dispatching centers. Correct. Uh, well, most of, most of us are dispatched through the police departments, and then some things that are fire only are dispatched through Suffolk County Fire Rescue. So it depends on the nature of the call. In, in South Hill, we're dispatched by the police. And actually, some of the police dispatchers are actually in the fire department. So they don't show up for the call. Or they're talking to the people on the phone. But the, the thing I really think, I mean, that the idea that you're going from one thing to another really quickly as a dispatcher is really a, a very important point. But what, like fires and and accidents and whatnot we all see it but there are medical emergencies in people's houses every day and it's ongoing constant and these dispatchers have uh emergency medical dispatchers have very specific training to walk people through keeping somebody alive in their house until ems gets there and i think that's really remarkable training to be able to tell people what they need to do in those initial moments, I mean, they're just such critical moments. Hmm. And you're, you're, you're training a person who's just like watched something happen in front of them and has, you have no idea what their experience is. The dispatcher is training that person to provide emergency medical care on the spot. And that uh -huh. to me just is an amazing thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're, you know, we're all involved with communicating right. and I've, I, I, it, how do you how do you write that script you know to to tell a dispatcher how to say stop bleeding you know it, especially if it's like a baby or you know there's, an, there's so much emotion must be involved they have to stay on point the whole time and it, it's got to be really difficult i think that east hampton is a little bit east hampton town's different because all of the calls go through that emergency services building, I think Sac Harbor Village, and you know everything goes there, and I think that they do all the dispatching from there. I don't know if there's a separate dispatch in each of the um, departments out here. I think that's how that group is a little bit different than. I know there's some coordination between them as well. Yeah, Chris, yeah. the the other thing about that you touched on it, but um, 
you know, the training to deal with those calls. But I would think one of the hardest parts of that job is that for hours and hours and hours, you may get nothing. Right. And then suddenly the world explodes and you're dealing with the worst possible situation that, that someone's dealing with in, in a matter of seconds, you have to be able to turn completely on to hundred percent where you're providing the necessary response. That has got to be so stressful for yeah. those men and women who do that. I have that. I have the highest respect for, for those men and women. And it's like I said, I feel like they have, they fly under the radar far too much. I think they're such a critical part of, of the emergency response system out here. Yeah, it was funny. I, I kind of felt that I, I went uh, last Friday, was it? And it was slow. And I felt like they were almost apologizing for it. Because I was like, hey, it's totally okay. You know, it's um, a good day when, yeah. when it's slow. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. No question. Uh, thanks. To, I appreciate that story that you did, giving them a chance to, to sort of be in the spotlight. Uh, I think it's great, great to, to give them a little bit of a shout out and uh, for the job they do. So we appreciate that. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We are with the Express News Group. Our panelists today, Alec Lewis of Riverhead Local, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Christopher Gangemi from the East Hampton Star. Alec, I want to go back to you. You wrote a story this week about, and it's a little bit of a mouthful, so I'm going to try and try and get right <laughs> to Long, the Long Island Horticultural Research and Extension Center. This is related to Cornell university. Uh, yes. tell, us, tell us about your story this week. So um, I, I guess, well, technically it was in April, but this year marks a um, hundred years since um, this center opened. And this is in Baiting Hollow. It's along Sound Avenue. And it's um, it provides, it, it has a staff that provides research and education on basically all the East End crops to local farmers and so they celebrated with um, the uh, the president of Cornell University and they're an extension of Cornell University. And this is only the second time uh, a Cornell president has has visited this center um, in, in its whole hit 100 year history, wow. um, which is really significant. Um, I talked to um, the um, the director of this place, uh, Mark Bridgen. Um, who's a plant scientist, and he was just ecstatic about this whole thing um, because it really shows that this place is important. It shows that to the staff, shows that to the local farmers, and so they do everything. Basically, I'll I'll um, cut the boring scientific words, but basically everything that that allows uh, these East End growers to keep on growing. Um, you know, things such as uh, insects that might uh, be attacking certain crops or diseases that emerge. They're there to get literally on the ground on these farms, pick up samples and study these um, these diseases and find solutions to everyday problems for all these East End farmers. Mm. And, and those those problems just continue to grow. I know the We've been keeping an eye on the spotted lanternfly, which is the the new threat that's working its way east and should be here uh, eventually, and and really has potential to to wreak havoc on uh, a lot of the agricultural efforts out here. And and I think the wineries 
in particular are concerned about that. So they provide well in uh, they basically provide information and and uh, help help these folks to uh, to combat it. That's that's their role. Yes, and actually, we talked to them for an article we did a few weeks back on the the spotted lanternfly and and a, a whole bunch of other tests who are taking, uh, you know, local trees down and 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 killing them. And it was really a great thing. They had like a little small party uh, with a bunch of local farmers and legislators. Steele was there. Krupski was there, and really just to celebrate this place that has is so ingrained in our community where I don't think we really think about how much that this impacts our, our local. I mean, this is a lifeline for farmers, which is, I I mean, you know, just to say something, Nassau and Suffolk County is um, you makes up the majority or at least Suffolk County makes up the majority of farmland in the region. And it, and, the Long Island region ranks fourth overall in agricultural sales in the state. So, wow. you know, these, these keep the, these scientists keep the vineyards alive. They keep the growers alive. They keep the food on the table. They keep the sweet corn every year <laughs> and the apples and everything that, you know, happens on these farms and all this agritourism. These are a lot of the time, the, the forgotten piece of the puzzle. Hmm. And they've been doing it for a hundred years. And they also provide services to um, home gardeners. Like you can bring a soil sample and they'll test it for you for like $5 or something and tell you exactly what your soil needs. Hmm. Um, They also run a master gardener program where like Mm -hmm. people learn how to become master gardeners and then they take out and they're they're required to like go teach in the community. Yeah, we have, I I believe we, I'm sorry. Go ahead. ahead. I said, I I believe a, a garden started a few a few years ago on in downtown Riverhead that that was a uh, really um, helped that yeah, the yeah. horticultural center really helped to uh, get that kick started. Absolutely. They were crucial to that. Yeah. And, you know, the region's agricultural community has so many struggles to begin with. And I mean, you know, the economic struggles and now the effects of climate change. So um, any effort to give them support, uh, is is crucial so that's a nice celebration i would and you have to really honor the 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 farmers that with with the with the the cost of 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 land out here the 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 thought of of just giving it up and selling and cashing out has to be really in the back of everybody's mind and and these people are just committed not to do that and and to keep you know to keep farming and to keep producing and and you know, and to keep the 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 struggle up when they could certainly, in in a lot of cases, sell to the McMansions and um, <laughs> you know, and and relocate and go somewhere else and and all that. So I mean, you've got people who are really committed to that agricultural um, lifestyle. It's it's probably worth taking a second to point out that this might be one of the lesser understood parts of the Community Preservation Fund, but. The CPF being enacted in 1999 really made agriculture a, an ongoing effort on on the the entire East End because kept it, kept it viable. Yeah, it allowed farmers to continue to farm and still be able to tap that underlying value of their land without you know by, by sell, selling the development rights okay. and, and yeah mm-hmm. on the on the North Fork and I believe in Riverhead as well. That's 
the primary purpose that they use the CPF for. On the South Fork, I know they have so much money, they can use it for a lot of other things. Yeah. There's still a lot of farmland left to be preserved on the North Fork. And that's really, you know, why the North, why like Southwold hasn't taken advantage of using the money for water quality because they're using still using the money they have to preserve farmland. Preserve farmland. And Suffolk County has its own farmland preservation program that I think predated the CPF. But um, but obviously the, the CPF uh, energized that effort. But we probably, I mean, it would be, a re- it's a real interesting sort of uh, question to try and picture what the entire East End would look like without the CPF. I think we would have lost even, you know, I, I wonder how much of well, and, and organizations like like the Connick Land Trust that that predated mm-hmm. the CPF and, and helped facilitate and continues to help facilitate some of those um you know development right sales and and all that where where the value is a little more than cpf can pay and they can come in and you know and and make the sale and you know and and then um you know sell a portion back to the town or 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 whatever and just help make those deals yeah so alex point that that this region is important agriculturally to new york state uh it's groups like the the Horticultural Research and Extension Center that help support that, but it's also just a moment to take a step back and see where we are and why we're here. It's good stuff. Bill, we also had a story this week that's sort of related. Uh, the East End Food Institute had an announcement last week uh, that they're planning a project up around Riverhead uh, that that is kind of designed to also bolster the agricultural community, but it's, it's going to help sort of bring together customers and farmers, right? Yeah, I, I think the point is to make sure that local people are have access to locally um, sourced and locally grown, you know, products. They're looking at it, it's a 15 to million, 15 to $20 million project. It's up on, on Route 58 and, and 105 at the, um, the former uh, Homeside Florist and Garden Center there that closed a couple of years ago. And the Food Institute's been doing a uh, farmer's market there, I think, for for a while. But this would really ex- expand that out. Um, and it would, uh, I, I mean, it's twofold. It's the, the, uh, the Food Institute has been out of Stony Brook, Southampton for a few years, has, has been, um, you know, providing um, schools and, you know, and other facilities um with with locally sourced uh you know produce for school lunches and and that type of thing um what this would would expand on that greatly and and this would create um, a processing and distribution center um you know local farmers could bring in their produce some of that would be you know distributed to schools and nursing homes and other institutions but it would also provide space for um you know for for these farmers to um um to 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 freeze or somehow otherwise um you know create frozen foods creating products from um you know salsas i i guess and and sauces and all that from you know from the food which really um you know expands out the use through throughout the year it's, it's not just a seasonal thing um so so it would have that element so in addition to to providing food to you know to schools and other institutions then you're creating a market locally for local produce and we all know that i mean local produce is 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 the best 
produce. Um, but sometimes, I mean, if you, if it's at the farmer's markets and all that, it, the, the, because of its nature, it could be a little more uh, costly and, and pricey than what you can get it, you know, and stop and shop in the frozen food section and all that. So, so there's an element of, um, you know, some people just don't have access to local produce. This would help in that regard by helping to distribute it more, um, by helping these farmers to process it into um, into products that would be a little more, um, you know, available to uh, to everybody in, in the community. Really, really interesting and neat idea. Um, you know, they're going to need to raise that money. Um, and all how that. much money are we talking about, Bill? It was it was, was a it, pretty sizable sum, right? fifteen to twenty million dollars. Yeah, it's a big project. Uh, right. you know, uh, um, but but I, I think they're going to they're going to do that in in steps. And the first step, so they're going to renovate the existing building. Um, and I think the price tag on that was one point five million dollars. Um, so you know, so over over time, they would you know they would uh, expand that. But um, I, I think it's a really really neat idea. It helps it helps everybody. It targets everybody. It helps people producing the local produce, um, and, and it gets that local produ produce into um, into the hands and mouths, I guess, of, of um, you know students and, and kids, um, you know, in the school districts, and helps out you know nursing homes and 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 all that, and then just makes it more available to everybody. Um, so everybody can can benefit from locally produced, which is, you know, much which is which is healthier and, you know, and, and, and all that. And, and one other thing that really highlights the need for these type of processing facilities is the uh, the Stony Brook incubator has been offline. The uh, the food processing mm -hmm. up at, uh, Epcal because they had an, a kitchen explosion um, and it's been offline, you know, and there's like 70 or something small um small food producers there that that rely on that kitchen that can't that have nowhere to go right now and if there were more options you know it, it would create a lot more resiliency in the in the food system here as well it's pretty remarkable how the local infrastructure has developed to sort of support these these uh these local um food producers and local uh they make different kinds of food products and things and you know we've seen We've seen so many of those things really take off. So, um, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, I, it, the 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 great story, of course, is uh, the the Tate's Bake Shop and the cookies and how that <laughs> took off. Exactly. I mean, I think everybody sees that as sort of the the gold ring, the brass ring. You know, if you can, if you can, that that would be the home run. That's a success run. story. <laughs> yeah, the home run. But you know, it's it's got to be encouraging for folks who are doing that locally for sure so it is harvest season so this is a good uh a good conversation to be having and uh we'll keep an eye on those projects uh this is behind the headlines on wliwfm i'm joe shaw my co-host is bill sutton we're with the express news group with us today christopher ganjemi from the east hampton star beth young of the east end beacon and alec lewis from riverhead local um chris i wanted to talk you know let's bring it down a little bit to the local level in East Hampton Village. Uh, interesting story this week in the village uh, that has to do with trees and with public land and with a private property owner. Can you sort of sketch the outline for us a little bit? Yeah, so um, this gentleman, uh, Dave Cool, I believe his name is, bought a property on Lockwood uh, Lane in 2017. Uh, next to him was a property which was purchased by the town in 2019 and turned into 
well, it was a CPF property um, uh, that was supposed to be become like a meadow. And when the town purchased it, they removed a lot of invasives uh, recently in the last couple of years, which then gave him a full on view of a parking lot at Main Beach. So it's kind of funny. They remove the invasives. They expose his $5 million property to a view of a parking lot. And he approaches. And, uh, and, con- and conversely, gave everybody in the parking lot a view of his house. Right. right? Which exactly. Is part of the yeah. objection. Queens <laughs> don't like that. <laughs> so he uh, he approaches the mayor and uh, comes up with this idea around the parking lot is a small strip of village owned land. And he says, Hey, I'll pay to put in a row of red cedars, you know, they're native and I'm going to irrigate them so that my view is improved Mm. basically. And they, they bring this to discussion and the, the discussion doesn't center around whether or not that's like a good idea. It's more about, well, we might lose, like the people might lose the view, like the public, like this one guy is going to have a a better view of, uh, from his backyard. But what about the view for the public who are walking on ocean Avenue? You know, so it all comes down to this view thing. Um, so it was surprising. View sheds. Yeah, that's that's the word, the word that we I remember a couple of years ago, there was a conversation about banning that word uh, in our our newsroom view sheds because it's not really a word. But so is that the downside here, Chris, is that that it's about um, it's less about the idea of a private property owner paying for trees on public land and more about the effect that could have on views that improving his situation possibly at the, the, the expense of the publics. Yeah. I don't really think the, the main discussion is, is so much about views as whether or not um, this is a, a kind of like proper uh, yeah. thing. Because to, it's to, somebody to paying for, for trees on public. Land. Yeah. Yeah. And also irrigation and also the fact yeah. that, this um this it, it's weird it's like that cpf land was to kind of um almost open it up right open it up be a meadow and then you're going to block it off with a row of trees and irrigate them mm-hmm. the irrigation uh, you know part of the reason for the cpf purchase also is because of you know water quality and then you're going to irrigate right next to this parking lot it's going to go down into that pond. It just, the whole thing just doesn't really seem like it makes a whole lot of sense in context of that CPF purchase. Well, and and at the same time, then, then he's taking on a municipal role by saying he's going to maintain these trees. If, if it was agreed that it was okay to have these trees there, then all of a sudden you have a private property owner who, who is obligated to, to maintain. Right. These and what if he sells? Exactly. What if he sells, if he sells or you yeah. know, something else happens or, you know, in, in five years, he says, well, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. They're your trees now. And, and all that that that's the part that seems a little inappropriate to me that you yeah know, that you're entering into this pi- private public um agreement somehow that just doesn't doesn't uh, shake out 
is what if i have a question is there anything in like the cpf that says hey if this land is preserved then i mean the public has a right to like view it (laughs) i mean if it's an open space because i guess that would be at the the core of the the issue would that be part of the management plan then or yeah maybe yeah yeah i think that they 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 envisioned the that property to be kind of like a passive use it wasn't going to become a park you know they uh i think originally they said well maybe there'll be a bench but it you know given the tick situation it uh, they were going to let it be a meadow i think they were only going to mow it twice a year so i think it was supposed to be there as an open land just to be open yeah. not necessarily used heavily or 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 anything like that um but definitely for the public seems like seems like a lot of questions uh is the village inclined to act on this do you think chris what's the what, what's your takeaway from uh their initial conversations well so there's there's a new aesthetics committee who are going to go and take a look at it and wrestle with the idea. I can't imagine that they would do it, but yeah. uh, then there's a, you know, a gigantic golden bull in Herrick Park also. So, and that, <laughs> and that was very close to being put on, on, on the, the village hall lawn yeah. before that got averted and put into Herrick Park. So anything is possible. So I, I think you guys editorialized that that this should should have just never gotten onto the agenda. That the village should have just you know immediately said, yeah, no, <laughs> you know, bad idea. I, I, I yeah, that's what I I got to I, I agree with uh, the editorial on that. I, yeah, I just don't it, think it's yeah. it starts to get a momentum once once the conversation starts. Yeah, well, then I I think we all know public officials. Once it's on the agenda, then then because they're all problem solvers by by nature they feel like they've got to find a way to to make it work um you know not not any outrageous plan you know i'm not saying this is necessarily outrageous but any outrageous plan once they start talking about it it's just like how are we going to make this work and and there's you know i i don't i don't, I don't see it a, a a lot of of denial of crazy ideas it's always like yeah let's make it work you know Right. So we're we're nearly out of time, and I wanted to save a couple of minutes here, Beth, to talk about your story about uh, in Orient. Uh, it's the latest example, and we've had several of uh, a family here uh, providing some help for some folks from the Ukraine. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, actually, it's it's a very interesting it's very interesting to bring up on this show because there's a a group of um, really active community members in Orient who had been trying to figure out what support network exists for refugees out here um, even prior to uh, the conflict in Ukraine. And um, when uh, when the U.S. was leaving Afghanistan, they were looking to see if they could figure out how to bring some people here. And they couldn't, there was no mechanism in place to do that at the time. So they were listening to Behind the Headlines last, no um, last uh, March when they were having the uh, the rally in Riverhead that a bunch of people who had family in Ukraine were um, at the rally and really talking about what this meant to them personally. And um, they heard us talking about how, you know, we were all struggling figuring out what we can do that's actually useful. And they said, you know what, we're going to just, and then a couple weeks after they listened to this, um, they uh, heard that that, uh, 
the U.S. was bringing in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees and they were looking for hosts to um, to to help them um, transition to living here. And they started their own group. It's um, modeled after uh, welcome.us uh, has this template that you use. So they started a nonprofit. Um, they found someone who was willing to give the use of a house for the entire school year to a family of five with three children. Um, and they they had fled Western Ukraine for uh, Poland at the very start of the conflict. And uh, they had a cousin who uh, went to the uh, St. John the Baptist Ukrainian Catholic Church in Riverhead. Um, so they finally arrived uh, about a week and a half ago. They're, um, they have a place to stay in Orient uh, for the entire school year. Their kids are uh, at the Oyster Pond School, where um, one of the organizers said, "What well, you know, she was at the school talking to some of the kids who've been there a long time and asked if she was a friend of one of the new kids. And the little girl looks at her and says, we're all friends of hers. So, oh, that's um, so wonderful. So, yeah. So they're, they're here and they're making, making the best of it. Um, that's awesome. And, uh, and they're hoping to sort of set an example so that other people realize that um, this is something anyone can do. Um, just help a family out. And, you know, there are a lot of communities in the U S even rural communities that, that have a big network in place to help um, refugees make a new life here. And um, this part of the U.S. hasn't really done that. Um, and we can. And I think some of the East End has stepped up and it's a wonderful story. And uh, it's kind of humbling to think that we played some small role in that. I, I think that's an amazing thing. Uh, makes me very proud and uh, just a great story, Beth. Uh, we are out of time. Uh, this has been Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, thank you to our panelists, Alec Lewis from Riverhead Local, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Christopher Gangemi from the East Hampton Start. Thank you, guys. Thank appreciate you. you. Thank appreciate you. you turning out for us. Bill, thank you as always, and I'll see you back here next week.